like I said, if my dog goes to the window, I, I will make sure I corral him. You said you have pets? I do, I do. So we have um, a, an almost 16-year-old kitty named Dreamus and, and a just over 8-year-old dog named Gracie. And, uh, and yeah, so when I do things like this, uh, my husband, uh, who also works from home, he, he'll come up and he'll like sort of like corral the animals. But uh, I have a French door, so it's glass. Uh, and so I'll be doing these types of events. And then, like I said, from the corner of my eye, I can see, I can see uh, our cat, who's a, he's a Norwegian forest cat. So he's fluffy, flinging himself against the, uh, against the door and he stretches really high and he starts like clawing at it. And, um, and Gracie, she's a, oh goodness, she's a Siberian Husky, Australian Sheepdog, German Shepherd mix. Oh wow. Uh, and she's, you know, her she's very clever with doors. So it's, it's both hilarious and worrisome because she'll just smash her, like her snoot. Yeah. Right. So just keep nudging the door and then, you know, and, and then she'll like make that eye contact. Like if anyone has Huskins, you know what I mean? They make that eye contact. Like they're staring into your soul. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I'm pretending to be a grown up. Like just give me five minutes here. That's it. I, and I have done that. I've, I've, I have done that where I'm just finishing off um, like homework and yeah. they don't understand. Right. And yeah. I have, I have said those exact words, just five minutes, just give me five minutes. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So our listeners, I, let me introduce you. Let me introduce you to Natasha mm-hmm. Dean. Oh, wow. I I'm really excited. I'm going to make sure I try to control my excitement. Don't be... control your excitement. <laughs> I love go, this. Go full on. Go full on. <laughs> I support you in this. I'm trying to be a professional here. This is going to be a great podcast, <laughs> I can tell you now. So, so if people know, first-time listeners, my name is Joanna, and I am the author of The Unraveling in Dealer's Child, which are thriller, mystery, just plain thriller novels involving a lawyer. Now, Natasha, she writes for kids, teens, and adults. She believes the world is changed one story at a time, definitely. And she has a, a is it, how do you pronounce that, Natasha? Guyan, Guyanese. 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 Canadian. She And as a Guyanese Canadian, her family immigrated to Canada and she's seen firsthand how stories have the power to shape the world. And I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. When Natasha's not writing, she enjoys visiting schools, libraries, and other organizations to help people to find and tell the stories that live inside them. She also spends an inordinate amount of time trying to convince, as we've just learned, her pets <laughs> that she's the boss of the house. And uh, so, Natasha, she is the author of the Lark and Connor Boss series. It is a CCBC best pick for kids and teens, starred selection, and the Guardian series, Moon Moonbeam Award, Sunburst Award nominee, and Alberta's Reader's Choice nominee. Her latest novel, In the Key of Niragani, Mm-hmm. is a Junior Library Guild selection and a Barnes & Noble Top 25 Most Anticipated 
own voices novel. And we're going to talk about her website. That is so cool. Natasha, ah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me here. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for making time. And to our listeners out there, thank you for sharing your time with me. I, I really appreciate it. Good. All right. Well, we are going to start with a serious question right out of the gate. And this has to do with inclusion. Now, I really want the readers to know about you and, and know about your story because you have a fascinating story. Uh, your family moved from Guyana to Canada mm-hmm. to escape the country's growing racial and political violence. Um, and so our listeners understand you were born in Canada, moved to Guyana when you were three weeks old. Holy mm-hmm. smokes, three weeks old. Um, you grew up in Nandy Park. Mm-hmm. Southwest of Georgetown before returning to Canada when you were five. Mm-hmm. Now, in your bio, it says you loved, and I, I, oh God, you loved growing up in a country of snow and flannel. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes being the only mixed race child in the classroom meant being bullied and feeling invisible. Because there were no reflections, and this is so important, because there were no reflections of you on TV or in movies, mm-hmm. and growing up, you felt different from everybody. Holy smokes. Now, I have interviewed three, um, Tioni is a children's author, so it was Tioni Spath-Helfer, she's mm-hmm. an Aboriginal children's writer. Uh, DC Gomez was just on the podcast and she is from the Dominican Republic, but Texas is now her home. Mm-hmm. And all of you and you have made me understand even more the white privilege I have. I'm gonna, ah, I didn't think I'd get emotional here. Mm-hmm. And what I had growing up, which I was totally oblivious to. Okay. Um, And DC Gomez said in her interview that when she first started to write novels, she was writing about white characters. Mm -hmm. And my, because we only do audio, people did, my mouth dropped open. I couldn't Mm -hmm. believe that an author would have to do that. Okay. So have you ever felt that you had to do something similar like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When I was, um, So just so uh, our listeners get a little bit more of the nuance, uh, I started writing in university because I I needed to save my my mental health. Um, And then in like 2006-ish, decided I really wanted to do this as a career. Yeah. Um, And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There you would, I would write characters of color and, you know, it would come back like, oh, the story is really urban. The story is really, you know... And there's always these really lovely little codes that basically were like, mm, character of color, no, no thanks. Uh, and um, I had made a business decision when I went into writing that I was going to start writing uh, for adults in romance. Um, and to all of my fellow like uh, hopeful writers out there, the reason I chose adult romance was because it produces the most amount of books. It's the most welcoming to new writers who are seeking to establish themselves. And it's the most open to writers who don't have agents. 
right? So it was like the biggest, it had the biggest sort of um, trampoline to jump onto, if, yeah. if I can say it like that. Um, and yeah, there wasn't a real, I mean, if you think about it, so think about this for a second. So Harlequin, which is one of the biggest romance publishers, and I don't know what it's like now, yeah. uh, but at the time, they had a separate line for African-American uh, characters, right? So they never got to mix, yeah. um, so to speak, with like the presence line or, you know, whatever, steeple. Yeah. Um, they had their own separate line. You never saw it in the bookstores. Uh, and that was straight. And and so it was like white characters or African-American, like take your, take your pick about what you want to write. Um, and so it was a very deliberate, and I can understand what DC is saying because it is a very deliberate business decision. Thankfully, we don't have to do that now. Yeah. But back then, certainly, if you wanted someone to do more than a passing glance, because really what we were looking at is a transition from um, predominantly white casting yeah. to uh, casting where the people of color were only there as tokens. Right. Oh. Or or anybody from a marginalized community was only there as a token to showcase that this lead character was not racist, was not ableist, was actually a really good person. Like they were just there as a marker for this other God. person's personality. Um, and I think for and I think a lot of uh, readers will probably readers of color will probably um, understand what I'm talking about here, that especially within romance at the time what you saw a lot of was that really gross, <laughs> that really gross section in, in some of these books where um, the white lead is, the white male lead is with his white female lead. And he's, you know, teaching her all of the mysteries and joys of, you know, carnal physical love. And she makes some comment about, oh my, you know, where did you learn that? Or how are you so good at this? And inevitably, he would make some comment about having, you know, um, traveled in India where a woman taught him the mysteries of the Karma Sutra, or he was in, you know, somewhere in Asia where some, so the women of color when mentioned yeah. were there as like teachers to the white male lead. So he could gift his himself to his white female lead. So the women were like, vessels so it was it was really and I and I, I'm so happy to see that changing now yeah. um but but yeah so I you do feel that push in and um you know and I think uh and I might be getting a little bit off topic here so no, 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 I, no. I hope you don't mind but um but you know for for readers who are marginalized uh or sorry excuse me writers who are marginalized who are listening to the podcast there is more room for you yeah. uh you may still run into the brick walls of oh but this <laughs> but this character you know they're just not marginalized enough they're not or they're not the definition so um you know not every character of color is an immigrant right wow. not every character of color is just like not every white kid growing up in the south is from a trailer park or yeah. is doing that um what do they call that with with the the girls when they're 15 um and they do that big procession they they uh catalina kettle um but you know what i mean it's like right of passage so not every southern girl is like a bell of the ball on a porch right we are not none of us are monoliths none of us are stereotypes 
Yeah. Um, so I will I will say that to the, my fellow writers of color, my my fellow marginalized writers, and to my fellow writers who are not part of those communities who worry that, oh man, like people want diverse characters and I'm not diverse and I don't want to appropriate a culture. And listen, if you are part of a community that has always been beloved by the publishers, you're always going to be beloved by the publishers, okay. right? Like I, as an able, like. I'm able-bodied, right? Um, I, I, you know, I don't have to worry about my character who has, you know, both hands, both feet kind of thing that publishers are not going to want. The publishers have always wanted able-bodied characters. They will always want able-bodied characters. All that's happening right now is we are making space at the table for characters who's, um, who's, like part of their identity, part of their everyday is yes, being in a wheelchair or using a walker or um, using sign language, but that is not all of their identity, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I just want to say that that to to yeah to non marginalized folks, don't worry. To marginalized folks, take the breath. There's there's growing room for you at the table. Wow, and I think there should have. How do I say this? This has been a long time coming. This should have happened so much sooner. And mm-hmm. like I say, my eyes are just being blown open, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I, I, I just, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I can't, I am getting um, choking up here. <laughs> I just can't. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to move. We're going to shift so I can kind of gather myself here. (laughs) And we're going to talk about your website. And thank you for such a great, honest, authentic answer. I really, really appreciate it. Your website, when (laughs) I was on it, it was like I was in a story. It was like Mm. I was in a story. I say storybook. You know, you just you Mm. go on and you're like, oh, cool. Like what, what? What's going on? Like even that opening page. Like what is what is going on here? Right. This is so I love cool. that opening. Page. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you have your YA novels. You know they they cover so many issues, genres, age groups, so many issues you cover, and I'd like to talk about a few of your series, but the first is what book or series did you decide to write first and and why oh okay so and i i love those questions and and I, you just you ask such beautiful questions um so thank you for that okay. uh so the first book that i i sort of when i was delving into when i was transitioning from writing for adults to writing for kids was the true grime series um and it all started because i was really angry it was a bp oil spill that had just happened so i don't know that was mid to late 2000s yeah. and i was i was so angry because if um anyone out there is of a certain age you remember the exxon valdez yeah. oil spill right and how we were told it would never happen again and and here we are you know um and so the story was born from a place of anger because i just thought do Human beings even deserve to be on the planet right now. Yeah. And so the whole series sort of asks this question that there is, so it's an urban fantasy. So there's magic and there's non-magic. And magic has been looking at us for a while and has sort of looked in, and certain communities within the magical community have said, you know what, 
humans have had their chance. They are destroying everything. It's time to go into their world and just quietly get rid of them, right? And they're going to do it through viruses. Um, and so they're going to introduce the virus into the population. It'll take out the humanity and that'll be that. But there's other communities within the magical community that say, no, humans aren't bad. They're just young and they just don't have anyone to teach them. And we can't come in to teach them, but we need to give them space and time to kind of like learn what they need to learn. Yeah. So that's how the story started. Um, so the first book I sent out to so many publishers, so many agents. And um, and I got really great feedback. But the problem was I was new to writing for kids and teens. I hadn't quite learned the distinctions. And so part of the issue that agents had were was that it was in this in-between phase. There was some content that just wasn't going to work for middle grade. And then there was some content that wasn't going to work for YA. Um, and so they were like, you know what, we're just going to, we, we can't take it, but, you know, we love the story. And, you know, and I had such good feedback that I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to self-publish this book yeah. and see where it goes. Um, and it was such a good learning opportunity because, one, I got to learn what it's like to be on the other side of the desk, to have to hire an editor, to have to um, hire a cover artist, to work through all of those things. So I feel like it gave me a really good education for traditional publishing. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other side of it was that it also gave me an opportunity to really learn how to center myself and ground myself in what I wanted to accomplish as a creator in the world. Yeah. because what I got a lot of from writer friends were things like, but if you're just patient, you know, eventually a, a traditional publisher will take you, you know, why don't you believe in your work enough to like, let someone else do it? Cause this was like, self-publishing was super new. Yeah. Um, and it was really like frowned upon. Yeah. It was like, if real writers didn't self-publish, yeah. um, I had one person who said to me, but how do you know it's good until an editor tells you? And I said, well, I've just had a whole bunch of agents tell me it's good. They just don't know how to sell it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and it's one of the things that people don't think about when they navigate this industry. Well, and I, I feel like this is probably true for all industries, but you're always going to have someone telling you what they think defines a true writer or an author or what they think you should do for your career. I mean, we see this a lot in terms of like social media, right? Yeah. What social media apps should you be on? How often should you be posting? How, you know, yeah. and it's so, right. And it's yeah. so important to understand who you want to be as a writer. And from there, you make your decisions because like, and it was so interesting because a lot of people had said to me, no one, you know, publishers and editors are, and agents, they're not going to take you seriously. If you self-publish, they're going to know, yeah. you know, and yet. Um, so let me think here. True Grime came out in like 2011, maybe, or 2012. Yeah. Um, and I got my I got my traditional publishing contract, my first in 2013, and that was Guardian. Yeah. So you know, Great Plains didn't care that I self-published. In fact, um, I've heard from quite a few, and this is going to from workshops and and also talking to editors and agents that they actually kind of appreciate people who do the self-publishing route because they really do have an understanding of everything that goes on. They understand the process. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times that means it's, it's slightly easier to like have certain conversations or to navigate certain things with them. 
Um, but yeah, it's really important. If you take nothing else away from this podcast, um, other than I, I have no control over my animals and I am totally <laughs> bossed around by them. Uh, do, do take away that this is this is your life. This is your career. And you get to you get a choice in, in how you want to make it work. That is another great answer, because I, I remember those days. I remember. Yeah. Yeah, it was because I stopped writing around 2013. I thought for me, it was. I am so tired of being rejected. <laughs> I'm so tired of being rejected. Like, I just remember thinking, I'm tired. And I had gone a different route of personal training and being mm. a fitness instructor, which I also oh, love, wow. right? Like, yeah. we're, we are such complex people. We're not, I don't think we're just one thing, right? No, no. I'm and uh, I remember... People asked me if I was still writing, and I said, no, I don't think I'll be going back to it. I actually said that, and then it was I, – I, I think I said this on another – I know I said this on another podcast um, – six months after my mom died that mm-hmm. I – just something came over me, and I thought, okay, I'm going to read this manuscript I wrote in, like, the 2000s, and if I see something salvageable. I will mm. rewrite it, you know, and that's Good what I did. You. And that's what yeah. I did. And that's where, and, and now it's, it's like you said, how you identify yourself in the world. You said something mm-hmm. like that, like as, yeah. or how do you de- yeah. identify yourself as a writer in this world? Wow. That needs to be, that needs to be written somewhere. <laughs> An inspirational <laughs> post somewhere for all of us. Okay. So, can you tell us, like I said, your website is a candy store and I have since purchased Burned and Terminate. I was on there and I'm reading about them and I'm like, oh, this sounds really cool. And I went, click, <laughs> click, right? Just, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you yeah. very much. I can, and I'm, I'm supposed to get them November 6th. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. So can you tell our listeners about the signs and please correct me, is the signs and wonders of Tuna Rashad, is that? That's perfect, yeah. Okay, okay, I'm going to mute. And the book trailer is beautiful because I think my dog just something out of the window, but please tell us what (laughs) this is about. Absolutely, absolutely. So the the book trailer was designed by a fellow author and one of my favorite people, Paul Kochia. Um, So if you look at the book trailer and you love it, that is all Paul's um, amazing design work. Uh, But the story started... Well, the story starts because I was talking to an elder um, who was being like, we were just sort of talking about the the process of aging and and whatnot. And they, their child who loves them completely um, was sort of like everything they did, right? Like it was like this worry about, okay, I think this might be on early onset dementia and, you know, your vocabulary is getting, and, you know, and this constant, like, why aren't you moving around? Like, why, why are you, why are you sitting in front of the TV all the time? Right. And I was laughing because I was thinking, well, gee whiz, by the time you reach a certain age, I think you've earned the right to sit in front of a TV all day, right? <laughs> and also, like, there's just a point where you're, you just kind of feel like, okay, I, I think I've said enough now. Like, I'm yeah. just going to enjoy the quiet. Yeah. But I could understand the friction between the elder and their child who is trying to, like, make sure that they go into um, their elderhood in a really sort of, like, uh, healthy, robust way. And it just cracked me up uh, because I thought, like, what does that dynamic look like every once in a while? 
And from there, I thought, well, wouldn't it be funny if there's like a family and it's the brother and you've got the sister in the mix. So there, that's how the family unit came. Uh, so you've got Tuna and Robbie is the older brother. And Robbie's husband uh, died suddenly about 18 months ago. Yeah. And Robbie is drowning in his grief. And part of his grieving is that he is now becoming incredibly overbearing with the parents in terms of like, are you healthy? Are you okay? You know? Um, so it's the end of grade 12. It's tuna summer. Um, all she really wants to do is ask out her crush, uh, Tristan on a date and maybe have like some kind of fun through the summer before she has to leave for Georgia in the fall. Uh, but at the same time, this, all this stuff is going on with her brother. So she's like, okay, I'm going to have to take care. I got to like help my brother. I got to help my parents. Um, and what makes it really kind of fun is that Tuna, like me, she's a Caribbean kid. And part of Caribbean philosophy, like part of the upbringing is that when you are small, you are taught by your uh, elders that your ancestors watch over you, right? And they they look out for you and and that you must always keep your eyes open because they will send you signs to, to tell you that they are there and to give, send you messages. That's beautiful. Um, yeah, you know, and I... Like, if I can digress for a second, yeah. I, I think about this a lot because I think about like what prompted, like what inspired that? Was it the, um, like, was it the colonialism that families were being pulled apart and this was their defiance? Like, even in death, we will watch over those that you've taken from us. Yeah. Um, was it in terms of like, pay attention to the world? Was it a safety thing? Yeah. Right. Pay, like, what's, what's going, do you hear that crack? What's going, you know? Um, and then also I wondered if it was just like a really good parenting hack, yeah. right? Like, yeah, go ahead, go, go play. But remember, you know, grandma's watching, <gasps> so, you know, how will you, how will you conduct yourself? Yeah. Um, so, you know, so there's Tina, she, she believes the ancestors watch over. She believes that the ancestors sent her messages. So, uh, through the summer, she's basically with the help of the ancestors going to get Robbie out of her life oh. to get him to stop meddling from her <laughs> life, uh, perhaps maybe get him a life of his own. And then hopefully with the ancestors help win over the love of her life, Tristan oh. Dangerfield. Right. Oh. Um, and yeah, so I think the last line is uh, a, a ticking clock. Um, oh no, wait, I have it right here. Hold on a second yeah. here. It is. That. A ticking clock, a grief-stricken brother, and a crush who doesn't believe in signs and wonders. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and um, and I, I love it because it deals with really, I mean, it's dealing with grief. It's dealing with family dynamics. It's dealing with the loss of people that you love. And yeah. I feel like especially in this like continuing COVID life that we lead, a yeah. lot of us are dealing with the loss of people that we love, sudden loss. Yeah. Um, but it's also re a really, really funny book. And I love that people appreciate the humor because it is a heavy topic, right? Yeah. So um, so Tuna is a, a, an aspiring screenwriter. And um, it was really fun to like, you know, where she, she basically, you know, has story beats for her as she's moving through in oh, the story, wow. you know. So it's, it's, kind, it's a little bit meta, um, yeah. which made me feel very clever. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really really funny book, and um, it's also a, a JLG Gold Standard selection. 
Uh, it was a CBC most anticipated books for yeah. summer. Um, and it made a couple of, of uh, reading lists as well. So it's, you know, it's really connecting with audiences, which is such a joy, right? Because we spend so much time by ourselves hoping someone will like our our little project. Yeah. And then when they do, it's just like, oh, thank goodness. It wasn't, it, I wasn't delusional in doing that. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I think that's going to be book three. I mean, I, yeah, I, got, I have my butt two already. Like, you know, things, okay, I have, yeah. Because <laughs> it sounds wonderful. It sounds wonderful. Well, okay, if I can digress. When you were talking yes. about, you know, your, your, you better watch what you're doing because your grandmother mm-hmm. is watching you. When yeah. I was a child, I remember going to school. And so we were raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. And my my mom said to me one day, it was, you know, and they point, they point to the sky, right? And she said, <laughs> Jojo, when you go to school, I may not be able to see what you're doing, but he's up there and he's <laughs> watching. So I may not have eyes on you, but God has eyes on you, right? <laughs> I remember going to school and thinking, well, actually... I think God might understand where I might be coming from. I was more petrified of my mother finding <laughs> out if I did something wrong over God. Okay. Yeah, yeah I feel that. I yeah. feel that. <laughs> yeah. So thinking of the signs and wonders of Tuna Rashad, mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies is Yesterday. And... It's not the same, but just the, the feel-good nature of it. Mm-hmm. And it's it was starring Himesh Patel, mm-hmm. and there was Lily James, Ed Sheeran, Kate McKinnon, and it was different. And there were believable characters that I could relate to, and there were characters I wish were my friends – I think I'm done with Marvel. I'm done with Star mm-hmm. Wars. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what I was wondering is, what is it that you look for and want from a character? Um, let's say taking Tuna Rashad, you know, what is it that you 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 want that character to to be? Well, I think as a, a reader, as a viewer, um, I just want to identify with you yeah. as a character, right? I don't and and it's something so I I, I teach introduction to children's writing with the U of T. Um, and it's one of the distinctions we make just because I identify with you doesn't mean I have to agree with you. Right. Okay. And that's a really good um, distinction because it means that I may not like what you're doing like character wise, but I can understand why you were doing it. And it is such a good um, sort of like uh, compass point for writers. If readers can understand the why that's perfect. Yeah. Right. Um, because that means that your character is is fully formed in terms of their motivation and their incentive and, you know, the the forces that press down on them. Um, and so, you know, when I think about like Tuna, uh, I want people like she's she really is a larger than life character. Like she's so um, hilariously over the top with it still, with, you know, sort of within believability. But she, uh, the thing that I love about her is just, she is just so unapologetically herself. She's not going to 
you know, and I really loved the nuance of writing the relationship between her and Tristan because she's not like she's head over heels for him, but she's not Gaga. Yeah. So when he pushes back about, well, you know, sort of like, I thought you, you know, I figure you're too smart to believe in that kind of stuff. And she just kind of pushes back because this is part of her culture. This is part of her identity and her belief system. And yeah, I love you, but you don't get to disrespect me that way. Yeah. Um, and so they get to navigate what I think is is fairly healthy um, boundaries in terms of like, okay, you and I don't agree with everything that we each come to individually in terms of philosophy, but certainly we can agree to like respect each other's um, ways of thinking. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So when I think about Tuna and her, the thing that I love about her um, creation wise is that, you know, that, and I, and I hope like, I don't know. I, I just think like we live in a world that is kind of always asking us to apologize or explain who we are and apologize and explain our existence in the world yeah. um, and somehow justify our presence in, in any room. Uh, and certainly once we start looking at the things that, marginalize us right um we are queer we are uh not judo you know christian like all of those kinds of things then the um pressure to justify your existence in a space becomes even more kind of like intense and so yeah. i really loved a character that just went i don't have to justify myself to you i don't have to explain you know or shape and change myself so that you will love me back yeah, you know, if I have to walk away from you, I'm going to walk away from you. Um, wow. And I really like that. And it's done. I mean, it's for a YA audience. So it's done very lightly. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't get into these big giant monologues with each other. Um, but yeah, I really that was a fun thing to do. That's awesome. That's a, that everyone, every adult should have that attitude, should look through, look at life like that. You know, like mm -hmm. I may the first one being, oops, sorry, the, the little puppy decided he wanted to go sleep in the big puppy's, the big dog's bed, and the big dog's uh -oh. not ready to share <laughs> his bed yet. So he's had 10 years of having his own bed. He's not ready to share. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. So, but no, people, I think we need as adults, so I may not disagree with what you say, or I may not, mm -hmm. but I understand just that openness right yeah, yeah. okay yeah. so we're going to now switch it again because we're going okay. to get into the other series the retribution series and mm -hmm. talk about burned and burned is the one book and terminate is the other mm -hmm. so can you give our listeners a brief idea of what burned is about so burned uh before so the story premise of burned is my main character, Joe, uh, sets out to take down a corrupt cop. And that's basically the, you know. Um, but the series, it was a very cool idea by author Sigmund Brower. Uh, and so when you look at the series, like I, I have two books in the series. <clears throat> Sigmund has two books in the series. And Judith Graves has two books in the series. So it's actually a six-book series. Um, and Sigmund just had this idea of, wanted to do some kind of like collaborative projects. He brought the two of us on board. And then we were sort of brainstorming, like, what could this look like? And we decided that we wanted um, the series to be like the A-Team meets Robin Hood. 
So, you know, yeah, a series of like sort of renegade kids who are going to go out and do good in the world, um, but they don't trust the adults around them, right? You just, you know. And so the challenge, once we had this idea, the challenge was, hey, listen, we're going to write for a really specific audience. So who we're going to be targeting on this is we're going to be targeting the striving readers. So it's going to be YA for striving readers. And for audience members who may not know what that term is, um, what it means is that it is someone who is in grade 10, but they are not reading at a grade 10 level. They may be reading at a grade three level or a grade six level. So these are kids who are um, emotionally and socially very sophisticated. They're every bit or like a, what we would you know, call a regular kid. Um, but when it comes to reading and writing, they need a little bit of extra love. So they need a linear plot line. They need shorter sentences. They need, um, character names that are easy to pronounce and easy to sound out. So we were like, okay, so this is, this is what we're going to do. And then also we need to balance, uh, the grit because my character is homeless. She's a homeless kid. She's been living on the streets for two years. So we've got to balance that. Um, and what it means, the reality, but also not to be so realistic that now we're pushing into adult territory. Um, so wow. those were those are the challenges. And then the fun writing challenge, like I mean, they're all fun writing challenges, but each of the books have a shared scene. So in Burn, there's one scene where like Joe and Raven, who's Judas character, meet up for the first time. And in my book, you get that scene through Joe's perspective. In Judah's book, you get that through Raven's perspective, right? And same thing too, when my character meets um, Sigmund's characters, it's the same thing, right? Uh, so that was very, wow. that was really fun. It's sort of like a matrixy kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, and I'm, I'm really like uh, pleased with the series. And I had a really funny conversation with someone uh, one time. This was an adult, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and she said, you know. I just sort of, I was expecting like a pulp fiction, you know, and this isn't what I thought, you know, and and the plot line is so simple and and she's going on and she's like critiquing the book. And I said to her, I said, well, yes, but you have like, you are a post doc, haven't gone to university person who's um, like major is literature. Yeah. This book is for a 12 to 18 year old kid who is reading at an eight-year-old grade level, yeah, right? Yeah. So I, I'm i not, you are not, I love you, but you are not my audience. And if you yeah. don't like this book, like, that's fine. I'm not yeah. going to lose sleep over the fact that you don't like, you know, like yeah. a kid came to me yeah. and said, no, I don't like this book. Then I would have the conversation because that, that child is my audience, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and it was really funny because the person in the question went, well, yeah, but. No, no, and no, I no. Went, okay. <laughs> I'm done now. If you don't, if you don't have the basic empathy yeah. for what it must be like for a kid struggling to read, yeah. um, and struggling in a world that is highly literate, yeah, um, and you still need me to write a kid's book that's applicable to you, uh, you know, I'm gonna just dance myself on out of here because yeah. you know this yeah. is not happening, you okay. know. So, it, it, but yeah, I mean, and and I tell that story again, to my fellow writers out there that you're always going to have someone who comes along and tells you that your book wasn't good enough. And why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? And at the end of the day, your kind of like standard for excellence should always be, am I proud of this work? 
Yeah. Was it the very best I could do in the moment? Um, and yeah, if those are your standards, then let other people's opinions fall where they may. Yeah. Um, you know, because uh, because everybody, this is listen. I mean, we live in a social media world. Everybody's got an opinion. Yeah. Even if they don't know what they're talking about, yes. especially when they don't know what they're talking yeah. about. Well, I read the headline. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was pumping my gas and I heard these two people talking as they yes. walked past me. And now yes. this is how I feel about it. Okay. Okay. Sweet self. You, you go on. You go on. God, that's so true. That is so true. <laughs> okay. So what I think is cool is that Orca put one moment, one moment here, Natasha. Yeah, for sure. Now, what I think is so cool is that Orca put together together a reader's guide for teachers. And there are amazing questions in this reader's guide. And these are questions that should be asked of adults. So I thought, let's do one. Let's do one from Burned. And I thought the listener could then answer, you know, for themselves. So here's the question. And this is from the Reader's Guide for Burned. Each year, more and more people throughout North America end up living on the streets. Some people feel that it is the government's job to help these people, while others feel that they need to take responsibility for their own life and stop depending on handouts. Now, the students in the classroom are to choose sides and debate whose responsibility this is. So I thought, let's let's do this, okay? So I'm going to answer first, okay? I was thinking about this question uh, throughout the day. Okay, so each year, more and more people throughout North America end up living on the streets. Some people th- feel that it's the government's job to help, while others feel that they need to take responsibility of their own life and stop depending on handouts. Okay. I think, mm-hmm. okay. The government should take some responsibility um, and look after our fellow humans, our human being, they're human beings. Okay. we. It, I'm thinking about the different labels that have been put on people. Mm-hmm. And I think fellow human beings should also assist however that individual feels comfortable, okay? Um, whether it's donating money to a food bank, whether it's donating food to a food bank, mm-hmm. it's whatever that individual feels comfortable with. I don't feel that we should complain about a problem and then push it off to another group to try to fix, because I think it's such a complicated issue, situation. So that's my answer. Well, I agree with you. Okay. Um, I also think that um, there's also like, just the basic understanding, like the the need or, yeah, like I think people need to start educating themselves on what it means to be homeless yeah. and what it means to live at poverty levels um, and to sort of take off that idea that, 
because it's very North American. It's especially very um, American, right? You pull yeah. yourselves up by the your bootstraps. Yeah. And the percentage of people that can do that is very, very small. I mean, a lot of times you see these, you know, when they talk about things like, you know, Bill Gates started his, he started, you know, Microsoft in a garage. Like, what are you doing? And it's like, yeah, but he also got like, uh, I think his mom was on the board. So he was able to get like, you know, lots of uh funding you know his parents had there was generational wealth generational education generational connections that helped um you know and i think was it jeff bezos who had a got a three hundred thousand dollar loan from his parents i might be wrong on the numbers so please friends fact check me on this but a lot of times when we look at people who are self-made they are family made there's you know um and so there needs to be an understanding of that but there also needs to be an understanding of what it means to you know and i think it was um I want to say Terry Pratchett, and I might be wrong, but it's in one of his books where he talks about the cost of boots, that if you have wealth, and I wish I could remember which book, yeah. and I wish I could remember specifically it was Terry Pratchett, so I could give proper credit, so I, I'm sorry for that. But he talks about, like, um, you know, someone who has wealth can go out and buy a pair of boots that are, like, $200, yeah. and it's going to last them for the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. Yeah, Someone who does not have wealth who is poor is going to have to buy shoes that are like 50 bucks, but it's not going to last. So next year they're going to have to buy another 50 bucks. So by year five, they've surpassed what the rich person paid for their boots. But so, and then by year 20, they've paid more for their boots than the rich person did, but they didn't have the $200 at the, at the time. Right. Time. So yeah. it's, it's things like that. It's things like if you don't have a car, how long does it take? to get from destination A to destination B, especially in areas where it's quite suburban, right? Yeah. There's not there's not a proper train system. There isn't a proper transit system. So, you know, people have to take into account, like for me to get to my job, it's going to be three hours. And I remember this, my parents, um, and when we lived in Calgary and they moved into this like new area, right? It was just being developed. And they were very happy because, you know, it's this new area, it's just being developed. It was such a, like they were, it was, it was such a gold star for them in terms of like how far they'd come from the time we sort of like put boots on the ground, yeah. which is great. But the assumption for anyone who lived there was that you had a vehicle, right? Okay. So the buses ran every hour and a half, oh. except uh, during rush hour when they ran once every 45 minutes. Yeah. And, um, and then on Saturdays and Sundays, the bus stopped running at five, right? So yeah. for me as a high school kid, unless I could get a ride from my parents or my friends, there was no going out on the weekend. Yeah. And to get from, you know, home to school was one, two, I think it was like two, two or three different buses in about three hours. And it was at the point where I actually negotiated with my folks that if it was colder than like minus 15, minus 17, oh, I didn't have to go to school yeah. right? because I was like, this is brutal. The buses yeah. are late. I'm freezing. Yeah. And then it's the same thing trying to get home. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and, and that's, and I didn't, you know, so, so that's what I'm talking about. Like just sometimes to educate yourself. So you actually come from a place of compassion. Yeah. And education when you're making decisions. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's really important to understand those perspectives. And I, I think one of my favorite stories for that is with foster care um, here in Alberta. And I don't know if the program is still in effect, but what they would do is if they have to take a kid 
out of the house and put them into care, they'll come with like a suitcase. And if the child is young enough, they come with a, a teddy bear. Oh, because wow. what they realized was that from an adult perspective, this child is in imminent danger. They need to come in. They need to get this kid out of the house right away. So they're going to come in. They're going to grab whatever they can. They would stuff them into garbage bags, grab the kids and, and go. But what they realized was a subtle message being sent to the child. Your possessions are only worth being like you are garbage because everything oh. that you own is being put into it. Oh. So it was this very quiet, small gesture to say to a child who was in one of the worst moments of their yeah. life, hey, you don't know me, but I got your back. Yeah. Here's, you know, um, and the same thing too, the Ronald McDonald House here in Edmonton, um, when kids come in, they get to go to the quilt room and there's an individual, like there's stacks and stacks of these beautiful blankets that people have, have knit, they've made, they've sewed like these quilts. So the child who's in, um, you know, in cancer treatment or in hospital treatment, they get to choose a blanket and yeah. the siblings who come along with them get to choose a blanket. Aww. Right. And it's such a, like these, these are the quiet moments. And, you know, where we look out to people who are in really vulnerable moments, homeless, um, you know, uh, and just say to them like, Hey, I, I got you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So we're going to do another one. Okay. Yeah. So the next book in the series is terminate. <clears throat> and can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about it before we go to the teacher's guide? Sure. So terminate is book two and in it, um, super quick, Joe, Joe's friend goes missing and she's pretty sure her friend has been pulled into an illegal fight ring. And so she sort of delves into the, the worst that uh, the city has to offer in order to find and pull her friend out of danger. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the question is, and I'll let you answer you, you answer first this time um, okay. <laughs> since I answered first last time. Okay. So question. Are first world nations and global organizations such as the United Nations doing enough to help refugees? That is, so the answer is yes and no, okay. right? Because I feel like we can always do more, but we're always bumping up against logistics, Yeah. right? So even simple things like um, certain, certain nonprofits that will go into uh, countries who are in turmoil and help the citizens who have sort of not been able to escape or left behind. So a lot of times, like sometimes, and I, I won't name the the organization, but uh, if I donate a dollar, only 30 cents gets to the person, right? right? 60 cents of my dollar is going to admin. Yeah. And part of me is like, well, listen, yeah. <laughs> can you not at least do half and half? But a lot of times, these are the only organizations that can get in, and there's systems in place, right? There's yeah. there's certain processes and procedures and hoops that they have to jump through, and all those things cost money. Yeah. Um. And so, can these organizations? Yeah, of course, we can always do more, but within the systems that are in place and logistics and and all those things, um, are we sort of sometimes trapped in old? Uh, methods that don't work or, or methods that need to be updated, but there just isn't the time or the resource yeah. to update them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's again, where as individuals, you know, we can, we can step in 
Um, and we may not be able to like, you know, rent a helicopter and drop boxes of, of, you know, baby formula and, and diapers and whatnot, you know, from high atop of a, of a, the sky kind of thing. Um, but even simple things, you know, like hold the door open for somebody, make eye contact and say, look, because, you know, when you are the minority or when you are new in an environment, you may not like no one else may know who you know. So those small kind of like human connections um, make such a difference. Right. And it can be something as simple as I'm just going to catch, I'm going to hold the door for you. I'm actually just going to make eye contact and smile at you. Yeah. Um, You know, just that reminder of, you know, Hey, I, I see you. I got you. Yeah. We're going to go on in our day, right? Yeah. What's your answer? Okay. So doing doing enough to help refugees. I would have to say the similar answer to you because mm-hmm. having worked in government, uh, I, I see it, it like I worked in the prosecutor's office as a, mm-hmm. an assistant. So what I understand from having seen the process of just getting trials to court, the systems mm-hmm. in place and how long it can take. So I, th- I think they are the, I think organizations such as the United Nations are helping. Mm-hmm. I think more could be done. And right now, with some of the research I'm doing with regards to the United Nations, you know, um, they they are trying. Uh, it has to do with war crimes, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and they are trying. They, you know, and you know, <laughs> I I went on the Facebook group and with the UN, and you know, they are posting what they are doing, and you could see other comments where people are saying, "Well, what about this country? What about that country? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do here?" And I thought, I thought, God, they are in a tough position, you know. Have I answered? I, like I, yeah. I, I say yes and no, but I, I, I think they have. But I think there's more that can be done. But I, it's not as I don't. It's a complicated process. And you hit it. You hit it on the head. I think quite often we want the simple, fast, clean answer. Yeah. And the truth is that um, with many, many things in life. Yeah there is no fast, clean, simple answer. And and there's all of these um, complexities that we have to navigate. Um, it's it's why I think sometimes social media can be so um, destructive because yeah. social media asks you to give a yes or no uh, binary answer and um, things just aren't always so cut and dried. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So we're going to... We're going to take us on another wave. How are you doing for time? I hope I'm good. Okay, I'm good. good. Yeah. So I saw you interviewed on CTV News at noon in Calgary mm-hmm. about your series, Spooky Sleuths. And in that interview, I it was a great. You gave a great interview. You give great interviews. You can, okay. <laughs> so thank you. That, yeah. <laughs> And in that interview, you mentioned that you had enough rejections. I have never heard this comparison before. You had enough rejections to be the length of two whales and a baby. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, how many rejections is that? And But more importantly, you kept going. I did. I did. Yeah. So the, the reference was because at the time, uh, when you sent out to an agent or to an editor, um, it was snail mail. So yeah. you would you would mail the letter. And the letter, you know, letter size is eight and a half by 11 inches. Yeah. So 11 inches is one inch short of a foot. Um, and so there was a point where I was like, I've had 450 rejections. That is 450 feet of rejection. Uh, and I happened to read that a full grown blue whale is about 200 feet. And I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to think about it. Like I've got a family now. I've got, <laughs> I've got two, two blue whales and their little baby. And that's, that's how I'm going to. And every rejection is like, oh, look, he's growing. Oh, God, that is such an amazing attitude. Oh, my God, Natasha. Thank you for sharing that. Oh. Well, listen, I mean, it's, you know, for, for all the writers out there, I mean, it is not. And this is something that I don't think people who are not writers understand is yeah. the grind and the pain yeah. of all of those rejections. Because at some point in time, you start wondering about your competency. You start yeah. wondering if you've got the skill and all those kinds of things and um I have to give my husband credit because there was a point where I was like I think I just need to give up like I think I'm totally done um and we were talking about because I said you know I'm just I'm so tired of all of the rejection and he said well yeah but you just need one yes right and I said yeah (laughs) baby I do just need one yes but that that yes is a long time coming (laughs) um and he said, well, yeah, but what if you just look at your rejections as every no, you're one no closer to your yes. Okay. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I should marry you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're already married. Let me marry you again. I'm going to marry you every week because you are genius. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so we we need to to keep those things going. And it's like I said in, in the CTV interview that, um, you know, a lot of times it's just when you're new and you're untried and people don't, they don't have a track record of you. They don't really know where you're going. Um, you're the person writing the the non-traditional character yeah. and they don't know if that's going to sell. Um, you know, so a lot of times you have to persevere. Um, and the patience that I talked about at, in CTV news, like sometimes people think that patience is, um, being passive. But it's not. It's patience is, is perseverance. Patience is looking at the long game and saying, no, one of us, one of us is going to go home and it's not going to be me. Right. Bam. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Now, the other thing I thought that was amazing in that interview, and I'm going to paraphrase you a little bit. Uh, it was in reference to authors and the reject mm-hmm. and rejections. And you said, we need to be patient with the world and let mm. the world catch up to us. And it's not about the individual. It's about owning your craft. So can you please elaborate on what you said? Because those words are so, your words are so important. Yeah. And it really, it, and I, that, that's so generous of you. Thank you. Um, it is about owning, you know, at the point in time you write a story, you have owned your imagination. You have claimed your creativity. And the problem is that we live in a world that montages um, what success looks like, right? So when you look at film, you know, there's there's a person and they step into um, 
like I oh I was just thinking the the image that came to mind was uh, the new the new Jumanji I think was with Baby Newark. Remember okay. she walks into the house and it's dusty and it's moldy and there's like so much cleaning to do, and within a happy little kicky two minute you know song, uh, all of a sudden the house is sparkling. Well, that's not true. That would take days and weeks, and it's the same thing. You have uh, Colin Firth and Love Actually sitting down at the typewriter and in a span of like six weeks, which is the story world, uh, he's finished his novel. Huh? And like, <laughs> well, oh. damn, Colin Firth, you know, um, most of us don't work that quickly. Yeah. Um, so when we, when I talk about owning your words, when I talk about owning who you are as a creative it is all aspects of that, right? What are the obligations that are on you on a daily basis? What's your job like? What's your commuting time like? Yeah. Um, who who is it that is relying on you for food and shelter? Because those things those things take time. Yeah. Uh, you know, we referenced we were talking about our pets, um, and you know, my day has to start with a dog walk. Yeah. She needs it for her her mental and her physical health. I need it for my yeah. mental and physical health. Right. But that and it's an enjoyable thing. But that that's time. Right. Wow. That's that's time. Um, you know, anyone who has a cat, we know it's like two two times in the day at 15 minute intervals. You play with your cat to give them that challenge. That's yeah. half an hour out of your day. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and also like just little things like I'm never going to walk by um, my pet's or or my spouse and not just be like hey i love you hey how are you like i'm gonna i want to give you that 30 seconds right i want to give you that five seconds so all those things add up yeah um and i need to take that into account and realize i've only got 24 hours in the day (laughs) right and it and it's the same thing to our listeners right what can you do in the time that you have and this idea that we sit down a la colin colin firth and write for you know the whole day that's lovely but is that reality no no but can you you know, as you're sitting, you know, the train is taking home, the bus is taking home. Can you throw some ideas up on your phone? Yeah, you can as you're, you know, um, you know, stuck in traffic, you know, what have you. I'm going to assume you're not the driver. You know, can you turn on your audio and just transcribe what you're thinking about on audio to yourself? Then when you get home, you just like, now you're going to like scribe it onto the page. Um, So there's always ways, five, 10 minutes. It may not feel like a lot, but you will write a story in five or 10 minutes in a day. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So we're just going to jump ahead a bit because I want to, before, before you go, I want you to describe the Spooky Sleuth series and because that's just come out now, hasn't it? It has just come out and I'm so excited about this series. So there's actually four books in the series. The first two dropped... Um, just like August 30th, I think they uh, Penguin Random House dropped two, two of the books at the same time, which was amazing. Um, and so the whole story centers around Awesome, who has just moved from uh, Scotland and he's moved to Lionsgate, Washington, <clears throat> because his parents are scientists and Lionsgate is a scientist town. It's a research okay. you know, facility. Um, and Awesome is pretty sure that it's also a town where supernatural creatures are wandering about um and his best friend uh is uh, is rockstar yeah. and rockstar is not sure it's supernatural she's pretty <laughs> sure that since it's a science town what it is is that it's some kind of science project that the lab is doing that is like breached the lab and it's just 
science gone wild. <gasps> and so the entire series has a different supernatural monster. Oh, um, and the whole thing centers around. So it's like supernatural meets science. So it's it's Caribbean. And this is what I love. It's specifically Caribbean supernatural monsters. So these are monsters you may never have heard of before um, meeting up with science. So the, the scientific method, you know, they're always, they form a hypothesis. They're going to go and they're going to test it. They're going to look for evidence to prove, you know? Um, and so there's so much to love with the series. Like you've got, um, diversity in terms of like marginalized characters. Uh, you have science, you've got supernatural, you've got these amazing illustrations by Lissy Marlin. Um, and you've got, like I said, the monsters that no one's seen before, but also uh, what you have is a very collaborative group of friends, yeah. right? Rockshar and Awesome and their buddies, they're not trying to prove each other wrong. They're just trying to find the truth, yeah. right? What is actually happening here? So at every point, they support each other. Okay, yeah. You know, like Awesome will say, well, I think, you know, this is what I think. And and Rockshar will be like, no, I agree. But do we have the evidence for yeah. it? Right. So they're they're not combative with each other at all. It's not about who's the winner and who's the loser. And the thing that I love is at the end of every book, there is still no answer given. So it's truly up to readers to decide for themselves. They get the same information that that Rockstar and Awesome get. And then they get to decide, are they are they like, yep, I think this is supernatural or no, I think I think in this case, I think Rockstar was right. I think this is just science gone a little bit you know, a little wild here. So that is, so I love cold. it. So it's, yeah. It's like X-Files meets Stranger Things with a Caribbean twist. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, Natasha, just kind of wrapping it up here. What's next for you? Like, what are you working on next? Oh, that's Ooh. a good question. What am I? Well, I, I'm trying. So I'm trying to do an outline for a YA contemporary um, romantic comedy. And we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I'm, I've given myself uh, a deadline that I want to do some, maybe like three pages today. We'll see if it okay. happens. Yeah. I might just end up outlining for what I want the scenes to do, but I definitely want to give my myself at least 15 minutes of, of writing time and creative time. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Natasha. I want to make sure I don't hold you back from doing your three pages. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's very kind of you. Thank you. No, I had I had such a great time. Um, thank you to you for these really beautiful questions and, and spending time with me. And to the listeners, thank yeah. you. And to all my fellow writers out there, good luck, man. Keep writing. Good luck for anyone who's doing NaNoWriMo. Yeah, uh, I, I, hope, I hope you get it. Are you? Yeah. Whoa. yeah. Oh, man, you've got 1,667 <laughs> words to do. Right? Get, get the get the puppies in on it. The puppies and and, and the older puppies. It's like, yeah. okay, y'all take these pages and I'm going to take these pages and we're just going to collaborate. Hash it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. exactly it. Okay, Natasha. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you. See you.